What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. And I remember having two books that I learned to read on. One was the first Noddy book by Enid Blyton. I must have been five. And the other was Rudyard Kipling's Just So Stories. The Just So Stories made a particular impression on me because of the language, because of the wonderful way in which he tells a story. He ran through the desert, he ran through the mountains, he ran through the salt pans, he ran through the reed beds, he ran through the blue gums, he ran through the spinifex, he ran till his front legs ached. He had to. Still ran Dingo, yellow dog Dingo, always hungry, grinning like a rat trap, never getting nearer, never getting farther, ran after kangaroo. He had to. This is the thing about poetry. You don't have to understand it. And this is what I think a lot of teachers get wrong. They think that poetry is a fancy way of saying something that's really quite ordinary. And once you've translated it into, into simple English, you've done the poem. But of course you haven't. You've killed it. You've tortured it to death. Hello and welcome to How I Found My Voice, a podcast from Intelligence Squared. I'm Samira Ahmed and I'm going behind the celebrity persona to find out what influences shaped a career. From reading Hiawatha as a child, say, to growing up in Southern Africa. You can comment on social media with the hashtag IQ2. My guest, Philip Pullman, this year became a sir, best known for your, his Dark Materials trilogy of novels. You're now a knight of the British Empire for your services to literature. Um, your plays, your books for children include a retelling of Grimm's fairy tales, and you're currently writing the second trilogy about the magical alternative earth of his Dark Materials called The Book of Dust. And I should say, we're actually speaking in your kitchen, in your house near Oxford, um, a city where you've lived most of your adult life, and a fantasy version of which is at the heart of all your most famous novels. And I think we're going to have lunch first, aren't we? What's this? Interesting. Samir, would you like some uh, raspberry and lemonade or some ginger beer? I'll give us some raspberry lemonade, please. Thank you. Because they were translating, they were translating texts between the Oh, are they? I'll just have a look at the soup. Thank you for welcoming us to your home. 
I had, might as well ask first then, as you spent so much of your life in Oxford, how important has the city been to finding your voice as a writer? First of all, it gave me a, a university education, which was all I could absorb at the time, which wasn't very much. So it gave me a, a, a kind of an insight into how the college system worked and what a tutorial was and high table and all that sort of scenery, which I used later in His Dark Materials. But then I came back to Oxford when I was about 25 and became a teacher. I was a school teacher here. And that was when I began to learn what I could do as a storyteller. This was in the days before the national curriculum. And because there was no syllabus, because there was no exams that they had to pass or tests that they had to sit or anything of that sort, um, we were more or less free to teach them what we liked, provided it wasn't immoral or illegal or anything like that. And I thought it would be a good thing if they if the children uh, who left our middle school knew a little bit about Greek mythology. So I told them stories from the Greek myths, stories of the heroes like Theseus and Perseus and that sort of thing, stories of the gods. And in the second term, I told them the story of the Iliad. And in the third term, I told them the story of the Odyssey. And these are your own versions of these stories? Yes, that's right. I'd read it up the night before, get it into my head, and then stand and tell it. I thought it was better to tell than to read. And I enjoyed it enormously. I, I used to look forward to it. It was the highlight of my week, really. Because I had th three classes and I, I told the death of Patroclus or something three times um, every year for about 12 years. So I got to know those stories very well and I discovered what I could do as a storyteller and what I couldn't do. I'm not very good at making people laugh. I can't do that. But I can make them keen to know what's going to happen next. And I'm not very good at the sort of domestic stuff. I couldn't tell a modern realistic story set in the world of today but I can evoke a landscape which they haven't seen such as the um, flower-studded grassy plain outside Troy. So I learned what I could do and what I couldn't do. I also learned a bit about timing because if you keep your eye on the clock you know the bell's going to go at half past and you work up to that very exciting bit when Achilles has just heard about the death of Patroclus and he comes up under the walls and looks out across the plain of Troy and the setting sun shines on him and everybody can see this golden head and they know what's going to happen next. And then the bell goes and they say, oh, oh, we don't want to go out. So, so um, you know, you, that, that, that's the sort of thing you can learn about timing when you tell a story. Absolutely. Technically, you grew up in Wales, but you had this incredibly international childhood. Where did you live as a child and why? Well, we were in Wales from my 11th year onwards. So I spent all my secondary schooling in, uh, in Wales, in North Wales, Harlech. But before that, because my father and then my stepfather were both in the RAF. Um, this is the Royal Air Force. This is the Royal Air Force. And this was the end of empire, really. Um, so there were still RAF stations in southern Africa, in Rhodesia as it was, southern Rhodesia. Which is now Zimbabwe. And uh, now Zimbabwe. Um, and in Australia. So we, we my, let's say my mother and my younger brother and I um, sort of followed him out there. We, you travelled by sea in those days. Um, you know, I'd crossed the equator four times by the time I was 11. What difference does it make travelling that way and then living in these places? That would have been so impossibly far for anyone at the time to imagine visiting? Well, I learned things about life on board a ship, which, which I actually loved, 
because we had the run of the ship. It was a, it was a, it was a straightforward passenger liner, Royal Mail steamer or something, doing a absolutely regular job carrying people back and forth. This was the days before mass air transport. I loved what happened when you when you visited a port because the motion of the ship changed, the noise of the engines changed, the smell of the air changed because you could smell the the vegetation on, and then uh, you you went slowly into the port and you looked around at all these foreign houses all painted white or wherever it was wherever you were it was it was so exciting and not not least because when you when you arrive at a port you're arriving in the heart of the city because the city grew around the port so different from flying in a plane because airports are 50 miles outside the cities so there's that and there's also the ceremony of crossing the line as they used to call it I don't know if they still do it when you cross the equator you have to be initiated and ducked in the swimming pool and introduced to King Neptune and all those mermaids and the and the shape of the sea differs and the colour of the sea differs. In the North Atlantic, it's grey and then around the Cape of Good Hope, it's green. And then, you know, when you cross the equator, it's blue. And the shape of the waves changes from sort of short, choppy ones, most uncomfortable in the Bay of Biscay, to long, long rolling ones. You see, all in these the images, these are the things that you saw and experienced. I guess they all went into that brain and ultimately you find you can draw on them when you're evoking these travels in the far north. Or well, it's my body. Lands. Because I remember, I remember the sensation of being seasick, and I remember the sensation of changing from a sort of rolling motion, which you can put up with, to the plunging and dipping motion, which is much harder to cope with, and all that, and and and, and the, the 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 smell of the persistent smell of diesel and cooked food that you get on a ship, and um, yeah, all that stuff. It's all very deeply in me. What book was the earliest influence on you? Because it's, I, I don't doubt for a second you were probably always a keen reader. I was always a keen listener to stories, and I remember having two books that I learned to read on. One was the first Noddy book by Enid Blyton. I must have been five. And the other was Rudyard Kipling's Just So stories. The Just So stories made a particular impression on me because of the language, because of the wonderful way in which he tells a story. The astonishing... I mean, can I, can I read I was going to say, would you? Yes, mm. we're going to read a um, bit of Old Man Kangaroo. Yeah. Yes, the just-so stories are stories of origins, of course, made-up stories of how things came about. And um, this one is about the kangaroo, and he was forced to run. He ran through the desert, he ran through the mountains, he ran through the salt pans, he ran through the reed beds, he ran through the blue gums, he ran through the spinifex, he ran till his front legs ached. He had to. Still ran Dingo, yellow dog Dingo, always hungry, grinning like a rat trap, never getting nearer, never getting farther, ran after kangaroo. He had to. Still ran Kangaroo, old man Kangaroo. He ran through the Thai trees, he ran through the mulga, he ran through the long grass, he ran through the short grass, he ran through the tropics of Capricorn and Cancer, he ran till his hind legs ached. He had to. Still ran Dingo, yellow dog Dingo, hungrier and hungrier, grinning like a horse collar, never getting nearer, never getting farther, and they came to the Wollongong River. And so on. The rhythm is wonderful, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, that's what you can do with prose, and I loved saying that to myself. I could sort of sort of read it because my mother had read it to me several times and I sort of knew it almost by heart. And I remember sitting, I was on, was on board ship, I must have been about five, and um, uh, looking, gazing at that page and remembering the words and kind of associating them with the marks on the page, which gradually became sort of transparent and, you know. So that's the tipping point where you learnt to read yeah. with that story? Yeah. Oh, it's amazing. You talked about realising what you could do with prose, 
But of course, it's the rhythm and the words which makes you think of poetry in that story. Yes. Um, and poetry was really important to you as a child. Which ones and why did it have such an impact? Well, one was, was uh, Longfellow's Hiawatha, which I don't think any, anybody reads anymore. Well, we were about to set off for Australia, and I must have been, what, eight then. As we left the flat in Battersea where we lived to go down to the taxi, which was going to take us to the ship, I took a book from the shelf. I don't know why I took that book, but it was the poems of Longfellow, of all weird things for a nature-old to take. Uh, and I, I found Hiawatha. Now, the point about Hiawatha, as far as I was concerned, was, again, the wonderful language, the, the rhythm of the words. Well, give Hiawatha. Because it is, I mean, I can remember yes, it. Yes, I can't, I can't do it exactly, um, word for word, but the point is that the rhythm is... Let me get it right. Trochaic okay, cannot. Um, by the shores iambic. of Gitchigumi, da, 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 by the shining Dixie water, so the rhythm of Nokomo, old Nokomis. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. It's sort of back to front. Most English poetry is iambic. Da, 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 da. But this was backwards. It was very distinctive and very, um, well, very pictorial and full of wonderful names and the evocation of snow and um, pine trees and lakes and that sort of thing. I, I, just, I just loved it without fully understanding it. But this is the thing about poetry. You don't have to understand it. And this is what I think a lot of teachers get wrong. They think that poetry is a fancy way of saying something that's really quite ordinary. And once you've translated it into, into simple English, you've done the poem. Yeah. But of course you haven't. You've killed it. You've tortured it to death. Poetry communicates before it's understood. I think T.S. Eliot said that. And it is the, it is the rhythm, the, the, the sound of the words, something magic in it. And it's apposite that, that Eliot said that because it was one of his poems that, um, again, was something that entranced me. I must have been 12 at that age. Which one was that? It's The Journey of the Magi. And I didn't know what it was. What happened was that at my school, um, there was a new teacher who taught us, what did he teach? Religious education, as it was then called. And um, he'd do a map of the voyages of St. Paul on the blackboard and said, now copy this into your book. So we'll sat down and copied it. And then the classroom door opened and in came six big boys, really big boys, at least a year older than us with bristly moustaches and spots and dangling knuckles. They were really big toughs. And I thought, we didn't know what was going to go. And anyway, they went to the back of the classroom and he conducted them as if they were singing, but they were speaking. I'd never heard anything like it. And it was it a poem? It didn't rhyme. Um, and as I listened to it, the words, well, they had a physical effect on me. I, my skin bristled, my hair stood on end, I, my heart beat faster. And the passage that really affected me was um, one halfway through. Then at dawn we came down to a temperate valley, wet below the snow line, smelling of vegetation, with a running stream and a watermill beating the darkness. Um, and I thought I, I, I nearly fainted. It was quite extraordinary, the effect that had on me. And I didn't know what it was until a year or two later when I discovered it. I couldn't account for it then, and I can only account for it now by using words like enchantment, magic, a spell. Words are such a central part to the power of your books. And I think about, you know, the specific invention and use of the word demon, um, you know, D-A-E-M-O-N, mm. that old spelling, the sort of spirit or soul animal counterparts of people in his dark materials. You know, and, and things like, and our, how do you say that? And bar, barbic, and, and, and barric. barric lights. And barric, which, that's the word amber. So you just sort of 
create a sort of slightly parallel version of everything. Yeah. And these are words that are both familiar and unfamiliar, but there's obviously been a real joy in creating them. That presumably goes back to these early experiences. I suppose it does. I suppose it does. They don't make a big thing of it, you know. And, and I, the other thing is I don't explain them when they turn up in the book. You have to find out for yourself by reading on what they do and how they're used and so on. It becomes clear. Do you actually compile lists of no. words? No. No, no. They just come to you when you need them? Yeah, when I need them. I, when I need them, I, I either make them up or find them there. What leads on from talking about the kind of alternative words you use is the ability to create and then sustain this coherent alternative um, fantasy world and the world of his dark materials and the book of dust you know it is it is coherent it has its limitations there is a logic within it but it has magic and um, it has all these elements which are not of the real world how easy was it for you once you started to be able to do that in fact do you have a sense of how you do it it's a lot easier than getting up off my chair and going and finding things out so that's why I don't write realism, because it's so much of a bother to go and pester people and ask them questions. Some writers are very happy to do that, but I'm sort of shy about it. I don't want to waste people's time. Um, so I'd much rather sit at home and make it up. It's easier. And that's the truth. <laughs> that's a simple answer to a complex question. Can I ask, your father died when you were very young. Yeah. How did it affect you? Yes, my father was a pilot in the Royal Air Force, and he was involved at the time in the Mau Mau emergency. Now, the, the RAF was involved in, and it embarrasses me terribly to say this now, um, he was involved in dropping bombs on people who had, I don't know what they had, rifles, spears, guns. Well, this was the, uh, the sort of Kenyan um, uprising. The insurgency, as they yeah. used to call it. Uh, anyway, his plane crashed and he died. And not knowing, what was I, seven or something, I didn't know anything about the politics of it then. I had no idea what was happening except that Daddy was a long way away fighting and um, he was he was killed. And I, I formed the idea, I don't know how, um, that he'd been shot down, you see. This was, the, this was the sort of central myth of my childhood, that my father had been shot down in his plane. And um, he was given a, um, a, a, the, the Distinguished Flying Cross posthumously. And my mother and my brother and I went to Buckingham Palace to collect it from the Queen, which is a big, huge event for us. But we didn't really know him, because he wasn't at home very much. He was always away, either abroad or somewhere else. He was a big man with an RAF moustache and um, a cigarette perpetually in his hand and probably a pint of beer in the other. I'm describing someone rather like Nigel Farage now, which horrifies me. Well, I wasn't thinking that. I was thinking, well, there's something of the, the distant father who, who's in the real world of Lyra's father. Well, there we are, yes. But I think a lot of people who end up writing books, and perhaps um, especially children's books, had a missing parent in their life. Missing Parents are what, the people you have to get rid of in, when you're writing a book for, about children because they spoil everything, parents. You have to get them out of the way or just pretend they say, yes, dear, of course you can go off camping for five five weeks with your friends on that sinister little island in the middle of the bay where the smugglers go. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, we were dutifully sorry, my brother and I, dutifully sad, but I can't say I felt a great deal because, as I say, he was always away. Then my mother married again, married another RAF officer, another RAF pilot, and he was the one who was posted to Australia, so um, that's when we went there. I gather that you knew by the age of 12 that you wanted to write, and this would have been when you were settled in Wales. What sort of writing? Did you already have a sense that it was this the making up of fantasies? I'm not fantasy necessarily. Stories, I wanted to write books like the books I read. I loved ghost stories. I loved ghost stories and horror stories. 
so I, 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 wrote, I wrote that sort of thing. And whenever we were, we were allowed to write a story at school, because creative writing didn't exist then as a school subject. But once a, once a term, um, my dear Miss Jones, the English teacher, let us write a story, so I reveled in that. You loved the Gothic too, which I guess comes from a love of horror. And I was looking at the illustrations on your website um, for the Northern Lights uh, book. You know, I saw a skull, a raven, an ape, a beetle. By coincidence, perhaps, images that crop up in Edgar Allan Poe's stories. Um, he was a big influence on you. I think coincidence is a bit of a stretch. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, well, again, I discovered the, the raven and other poems by Poe when I was, oh, before, before I was 10. And the Raven is such a, a such a strong poem. Again, rhythmically, the, the the language is very distinct. Couldn't be by anyone else. Once upon a midnight dreary, as I pondered, weak and weary, over many a quaint and curious volume of forgotten lore, as I nodded, nearly napping, suddenly there came a tapping, as of someone gently rapping, rapping at my chamber door. And so on. It's it's so evocative. Of course, it's over the top. Of course, it. I think Kingsley Amy said, "Was he joking?" <laughs> of this poem, but no, he wasn't joking. It's a wonderful poem for showing what you can do with the sounds of words. And the silken, sad, uncertain rustling of each purple curtain thrilled me, filled me with fantastic terrors never felt before. So that now, I st- so that now to still the beating of my heart, I stood repeating, "Tis some visitor entreating entrance at my door." You know, it's. Oh, it's wonderful. Well, wonderful you, you, it's obviously, I mean, you know it by heart. It's obviously, you know, very much ingrained in you. Can I ask about your grandfather? Because he was a clergyman and mm. you did spend time with him. What impact did he have on you? Well, because of my father's um, death and because my mother went to work in London, where she worked for the BBC, actually, uh, we spent a lot of time, my brother and I, with my, in my grandfather's household in uh, Drayton, near, near Norwich in Norfolk, where he was, the, he was the local rector, rector of the local parish. A very old-fashioned clergyman with a very simple faith. I don't mean he was a literal creationist. Um, no, not at all. He was too modern for that. But he thought that there was the truth and the church was right about it and um, what the church, you know, all the church services, which was still conducted then in the language of Thomas Cranmer and the 1662 Book of Common Prayer, which I loved, again, for the same reason, because the sonorous phrases have followed so much the devices and desires of our own hearts, that sort of thing. I, I would sort of mouth it along with the priest as, as, he, as he said it. Um, just for the pleasure of the language, so there was there was that, and also because he was a wonderful storyteller, my grandfather. Um, all his sermons were full of stories, um, some of them um, made up, as I discovered, and some of them true, and some of them Bible stories, and some of them not. He was very fond of um, cowboy stories. Hiawatha oh, <laughs> must have resonated with him too, because there was a little stream he used to take us to, and we'd fish for tiddlers in there, and he'd say, "This is this is a stream called Laughing Water, boys. Laughing Water, Minnehaha." Uh, so, so he was he was he was that figure for me. He was he was the father figure whom I didn't have in real life, um, and I thought he was uh, he was everything really. Can we talk about Paradise Lost? Mm. John Milton's epic 17th century Christian poem about the fall of Lucifer has clearly been a huge influence on the fantasy world of your His Dark Materials trilogy. 
tell me how you came to fall under its spell first, and then let's hear a bit. Well, unlike most other discoveries, this was actually um, this actually happened in a in a in a lesson where it was supposed to happen. Um, we did we did books one and two of Paradise Lost for A level, English A level, and the way Miss Jones used to do it was to have us read it aloud. Explanations came later. To start with, came the sound of the pipe, and I think this was very wise and very sensible. And I remember reading one passage from book two. As when far off a fleet descried hangs in the air, uh, hangs in the clouds, close sailing um, from Bengala and the isles of Ternet and Tidore, whence merchants bring their spicy drugs. They on the trading flood through the wide Ethiopian to the Cape, ply stemming nightly toward the pole. So seemed far off the flying fiend. Uh, and again, I had that physical... It's happening to me now. <laughs> my skin's bristling. My... my um, my heart's beating faster, uh, which told me that something magic was going on. Of course, this is not the thing you talk about to anyone. I certainly couldn't have talked about it in the English class. So I did all the all the things we were supposed to do. You know, you analysed it and made all the picked up all the classical references and so on and so forth. But the magic of it was inexplicable and untalkaboutable. But I, I absorbed the the world of the poem, and then later when I read the whole thing at Oxford. It was one of the parts I enjoyed most. I should say, I mean, this room full of books, you've dug out your copy for us, and it's, it's a first edition from yeah. 16. I've got several copies, of several editions of I've just got Paranormal to ask um, what, it, what a book like this means to you. I saw it for sale and I just couldn't resist it. It's um, kind of extravagant, but it is one of the most important books in my life. The thing about Paradise Lost is that, on the one hand, it is full of these amazing images, yeah. you know, the icy worlds of hell and the heat and paradise and all these very visual ideas that one could see would inspire a writer mm. of fantasy fiction. But of course, it was written as a passionately Christian poem and you're a passionate humanist. So how, does, how do you square uh, that with the fact that the, this poem is, is written and motivated by religion? Well, William Blake has an answer for that, of course, as he has an answer for most things. The reason Milton wrote, this is what he said, the reason Milton wrote in fetters when he wrote of angels and heaven and at liberty when he wrote of devils and hell, and he does because um, the, the hell passages are much more interesting yes. than the heaven, but <laughs> Blake goes on, was because he was a true poet and of the devil's party without knowing it. And I just love that. Um, so Milton was uh, inspi <laughs> inspired by duty when he wrote the heaven parts, which are pretty tedious. And God is such an unpleasant character. Such an unpleasant character. What God? In, in Paradise Lost, yeah. The God the Father. Uh, um, you know, he's, he... Oh, it's unspeakable. He sends his son into battle to, to, to get all the glory when he could easily have squashed them all in the first place by doing something. It's, uh, the, 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 the list of his crimes is, is awful, and Milton shows them rather unaware of what he's doing. Because, as Blake said, he was of the devil's party without knowing it. That's the interesting thing. When, for you, do all these ideas start to come out? I mean, I don't know. You, obviously, there was faith in the family. You had a grandfather who was a, a clergyman. When did you start to realise you didn't believe in God? Oh, as a teenager, with the, um, with the discovery of the beat poets. Oh, this would be the, the Liverpool Mersey sound? Poem. No, not no. them. Sorry. They were very derivative. I mean, the San Francisco, Allen Ginsberg, Jack Kerouac lot. Um, I, I, I fell for Ginsberg in a big way, having read Howl in the sixth form and absolutely 
relished it. I loved it. Um, so I read all the beats. I read On the Road and The Dharma Bums by Kerouac and Gregory Corso and so on. And um, their kind of West Coast freewheeling existentialism, because they were all ex- we were all existentialists as well then, having gone having gone through Jean-Paul Sartre and Colin Wilson. Colin Wilson was very big in those days. Um, so um, it, it became obvious to me that there were more ways of thinking about the world than just the ways sanctified by the Church of England. I want to ask about Oxford. You studied English literature at Oxford University, but only got a third-class degree. What happened? Uh, well, I have to say I'm in good company here. W.H. Auden got a third-class degree. So did Evelyn Waugh. So did John Betjeman. Um what happened was I, <clears throat> I discovered I wasn't very good at it. I wasn't very good at writing critical essays. I wasn't very good at reading. Um, I read what I find interesting and then sort of stopped when it became boring. And the, the idea is that you plug on and read everything from beginning to end and make notes on it and then write essays on it. I didn't care for that, <laughs> that activity very much. And, and I did lots of other things. I played the guitar, I sang, I painted pictures, I, I fooled around. I'm interested that, I think it was the day after your final university exams, despite what you say about your experience of studying English literature, you began writing your first novel. Mm. You um, did become a teacher become... for many years, although we discussed the storytelling. But that was oral storytelling. When did the writer emerge, for sure? Oh, I was always writing. I, I, wrote, I wrote poetry for years and years. I wrote songs, which I dread to recall. You got your guitar just there. Uh, and that's where it's going to stay. <laughs> Um, I wrote so I, it, was, it was poetry I wanted to write first but I wrote I, I always knew I was going to write a novel so I bought a great big sort of minute book as they were called the book that you record minutes of meetings in um, and on the day after my final exams I uh, sat down and wrote chapter one at the head of a page and started writing a novel and on that first page I discovered um, a bit of a, a sort of puzzle a conundrum an enigma that I hadn't come across before. If I was describing what he's thinking, can I also go into her mind and say what she's thinking? Is that allowed? So would you do that? This basic little question about point of view mm. must have been discussed at dozens of lectures, tutorials, seminars, whatever, and I just hadn't gone along and hadn't, hadn't come across it until I started doing it. I realised, anyway, I realised quite soon that the point of view had to be anchored somewhere. And um, that, that is actually the fundamental storytelling question. Well, you mentioned points of view and you know, even things like f- filming. As someone whose voice is so carefully expressed in your written work, you've had a film adaptation already of Northern Lights, the first of the um, His Dark Materials trilogy. There's now a BBC series of the trilogy being made. How do you feel about adaptations of your books? And, and what do they do to your voice? Do you hand it over? Well, you have to, yes. Um, it doesn't do anything to the book. It's still there on the shelf, as somebody said. I can't remember who that was. Uh, if there was a law that said whenever there's an adaptation made of a novel, the novel had to be withdrawn and burnt, it would be a different matter. But, of course, the book is still available. And it's our common experience, really, I think. We've all grown up in a cine culture that if we go and see a film of a book we like, we kind of half expect to be disappointed because she, you know, it's going to be much shorter than the story. It's going to leave all these bits out, and she didn't look like that, and he'd never have said that, and they've changed the ending. So we understand what happens with adaptations. 
and it has had a number, but his Dark Materials has been done a number. He's been done on the stage very well, of course on the stage of the National Theatre. And a very good adaptation by Nicholas Wright. Um, it was done for BBC Radio. It's been done um, uh, as an audio book with me reading it and actors doing the, uh, the speaking parts. So it had a number of adaptations, so I wasn't worried about another one. Can I ask a bit more about your humanism? Because you're prominent and campaigning with it. And I'm interested in why you've chosen to use your voice that way. Well, up to a point, I found myself labelled as a humanist. But I'm a little uneasy about that because it puts you into a, into a definite camp and I want, to, I want to be able to believe more things than that. So I've been sort of softly tiptoeing in my own direction. I'm very taken by an idea of the American neuroscientist David Eagleman, which he calls possibilianism. More things are possible than we think there are. And in fact, everything's possible. Some things are more likely than others. Some things we know are true. Some things we suspect probably aren't true. But possibilianism is, a, is a, I find, a much richer way of looking at the world and deciding here and now that only scientific facts are true and everything else is nonsense. In La Belle Sauvage, the first book of the Book of Dust, there is this terrifying description of how ch school children are recruited to a kind of Stasi or Hitler youth by the church-run government to spy on and betray their parents and teachers. It was a really powerful part of the book and it felt that you were trying to say something and I wondered what it was. Well, you mentioned the Hitler youth. There was, of course, also the, um, the Soviet um, youth movement who were encouraged to spy on their parents, which I think is a terrible thing. It was quite well shown in Armando Iannucci's film, The Death of Stalin. And I think that might have been in my mind when I was writing that passage, actually. I suppose it's partly... We're, we're talking at a time when we know there's all this angry dispute out there about what is and isn't true about conspiracy theories versus facts. Yeah. Um, and also this idea of taking down older people who are thinking wrong. Yeah. And I don't know how far all that was in the back of your mind. Well, it's all there because, you know, I, I'm a citizen as well as a fantasist. I live in this real world which contains things like Brexit and monsters like Donald Trump. So I want to find a way of writing about it. I can't write about it directly because I wouldn't do it very well. But I can find analogies for it. I can find um, images and metaphors that seem to work. I know that book two of The Book of Dust is done and it's out in 2019. Is that right? Well, I wrote the last paragraph just last week. Oh, really? <laughs> and it's now with my... Editors. When you say you wrote the last paragraph, is like of, of a, not of a first draft, is it like? No, it's about the, the tenth final, draft. Final. I, I've been over it many, many times. It's been, it's been. I started writing it. Goodness knows how many years ago. It was finished in a sense before La Belle Sauvage was published, which was what in 2017 or something. But I've been working on it non-stop since then, cutting it, shortening it, tightening it, improving it, making things join together, cutting bits out. Doing all that stuff, I've been at that for a long, long time. And it's set, is it after the yes, it Dark is. Materials trilogy? Um, yes, the Belle Sauvage, the first part of the Book of Dust, was set roughly ten years before, when Lyra was a baby, Lyra's the main character. What, what happened in La Belle Sauvage has had a long gestation, a long maturing, and it's going to come into full existence in this book, which will be called The Secret Commonwealth, which is set 10 years after his Dark Materials. Lyra will be 20 and an undergraduate at Oxford. Oh, that's interesting. And um, at, yes, at St Sophia's College, which you won't find on a modern map of Oxford, but it's exactly where, by some strange coincidence, uh, Lady Margaret Hall is.
So we now see the consequences of what happened 20 years before when she was a baby and what happened 10 years before when she had the adventure we read about in historic materials. It'll be interesting to see how people respond. I find it, I find it fascinating to write about her as a, as an, or on the verge of adulthood. Well, you've, you've brought your... This is the manuscript for... Um, yes, book The two, Secret Commonwealth. Book of Dust, Secret Commonwealth. All handwritten in ballpoint pen. Mm-hmm. And these are, your, these are your notes. Yeah. Talk me through how, how it, what it shows and how you work. Well, I write on paper which I have had to render magic by the addition of a little bit of colour in the top you corner. You have this blue sort of Yes, I, 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 when I take a new pad of paper, I, I colour the top edge in so that the paper is then consecrated to that particular book. I write in a ballpoint pen because you can put it down and pick it up again and you don't have to put the top on as you do with a fountain pen. I like writing with a fountain pen, but the problem is you do stop uh, to think about what's going to, what you're going to write next, and then you have to decide whether to put the cap on, which holds you up a bit, or whether not to put the cap on. But if you don't put the cap on, it dries up the ink. So it's, it's, it's all terribly complicated. So I use a ballpoint. That's chapter one. Chapter sentences. one. Would you like to hear the first chapter? I would first very much paragraph? like to. Uh, chapter one, which I'm calling... Um, uh, Moonlight and Bloodshed. Pantalaimon, the demon of Lyra Bellacqua, now called Lyra Silvertongue, lay along the windowsill of Lyra's little study bedroom at St. Sophia's College, in a state as far from thought as he could get. He was aware of the cold draught from the ill-fitting sash window, and aware of the warm yellow naphtha light on the table behind him, and of the scratching of Lyra's pen, and of the darkness outside. It was the cold and the dark he liked most just then. As he lay there, turning around to feel the cold air now on his back, now on his front, the desire to go outside became even stronger than his reluctance to speak to Lyra. Oh, thank you. <laughs> that feels fully formed. Did you make any changes, or is that image was there? That's ready? pretty well intact. That'll get pretty well intact into the, into the final book. Um, so really, there are three piles of paper. There are the ones, ones I cut out and don't use. There are the there's the actual text itself, which has how many pages? Goodness, five hundred something. Pages. Looks like about five hundred pages. Yeah. and the notes, which uh, go through a number of different stages. Like I've got two different colours here. I've got sort of colour of your skirt and my socks. Or russet. I don't know why I've gone for that colour. I think I went for You've that colour. Got color a colour scheme there. Well, I'm just using deciding which colours to to go for. So each chapter. No, has, each book. Each book has a different colour. Mm. I, I don't know why. I've just I've always done that. When I'm trying out people's names, for example, there's a German professor in the book who's had about 15 different names. I think he's finally going to be Gottfried Brander. Names are odd. Either they come at once or you have to fight with them. Lyra came at once, but Jorik Birnesen took a lot of, lot of struggle. The Grenfell fire disaster, um, which killed, I think, more than 80 people in London. Um, I know there was a lot of fundraising that went on to mm. help the families. And there's a name going into um, this book, which is linked to that fundraising. Is that right? Yes. Um, there was uh, a girl of 16 called Nur Huda al-Wahhabi, who was killed in the fire. And her friends and her teacher at school and her, uh, other members of her family wanted to raise some money to pay for... Um, her to be commemorated in some way. So I offered to name a character in the story, Nurhura al-Wahhabi, and um, there was an auction and it raised some money. So I was, I was glad to be able to do that. This, this, this book was already written by the time that happened. So although she's going to appear 
in this book. She, it's only a fleeting part. She'll have a much bigger part in the, the last, in the last part of the trilogy. Wonderful. But I have I have named characters after uh, people who you know paid some money to charity. It's actually quite it's it's um I, I don't mind doing that at all because, as I said, either characters come with their names attached or, or they don't, and it's quite handy to have a name to give someone. You've talked about writer's block not really existing. What's your advice to people who want to be writers or who are? Well, firstly, read, and secondly, write. Three pages a day is what you do, regardless, is that right? Well, I write by hand because that's what works for me. And I found, oh, yeah, 50 years ago, I found that three pages a day, which is about a 1,000 words, is, is, a, is a reachable amount for me. Could I ask what's the status of the final book of... The Book of Dust trilogy. Have you started on that yet? No, well, it's all in my head. It's it's taking shape, of course. And is that where you gestate all your books in the head? You don't draw plans or timelines. Or... No. Um, again, something is, I found very long time ago is that plans don't work. Plans restrict. They don't help. It's me anyway. Uh, it's probably not true for everyone. But what depresses me is when I see children. Um, told firmly as if it's uh, a rule of nature that you must write a plan before you tell a story. You, know, you write a story, and they even they're even told to spend fifteen minutes on your plan and show your plan, and then spend forty-five minutes on the story. This is what they cho- t- t- told to do, as as if this is what the process is. Well, it isn't. It's much more fun to write without a plan. And then when you've got it finished, that's the time to make a plan because you see what you've got. That's really interesting advice. Philip Pullman, thank you so much. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you. This podcast was made by Intelligence Squared. The producer was Farah Jasset. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.